Good morning, and happy Father's Day to all the dads. I had kind of a fatherly moment recently. Um, our oldest turned 16 and got her driver's license. And so we got her this little old car. I think it's like a 22-year-old little Volkswagen. And she said to me, Dad, I've never had a car before. How do I take care of this car? How do I perfectly take care of this car? Right? And so as a dad, I said, well, I'm going to give you a book to read. This owner's manual. And it's, And I want you to read it. And I want you to obey all of the rules in here perfectly. And there's stuff in here you got to check your air pressure in your tires and uh, put oil in it and use only premium fuel, it says in here. And you got to do all this stuff, top up your windshield washer fluid. And then she also asked like some friends in the family. She asked the uncle and she asked, you know, mom. And mom said, make sure the windshield wipers, that's important. And you got bright headlights at night and make sure your seatbelts work and check the brakes. And uh, she said to me, Dad, that's, that's a lot of rules. I, I don't know if I can perfectly obey all of these rules to really perfectly take care of the car. Um, what's the one rule? I need one rule. Can you give me like one piece of advice? And uh, so anyway, the analogy ends there because I don't have that one. I'm not a car, <laughs> I'm not a car guy. I'm not a, I don't have the answer. So maybe <laughs> I said just, you know, pray a lot. I said listen to your car because as a guy, you know, sometimes I'm like there's a, there's a wobble that wasn't there last week. And anyways, um, the story has a point because the, the Israelites... The nation of Israel also had a book of rules. And uh, like this book of rules, it's, it's the book of rules that, that God gave the nation of Israel. And um, it was the law of Moses. So, of course, God gave the law of Moses to the Israelites. And uh, he wrote it down. Um, we call it the, the Pentateuch or the five, first five books of the Bible. Um, the Jews call it the Torah, and therein is, is, is the law of God that God gave to the Israelites. Um, last week we heard Lauren talk a little bit about how there's the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and there were these two sort of opposing political parties, if you will, that were um, trying to enforce this law, and they had different views on the law. And so the, 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 the Sadducees were kind of like, this is the written law, and this is what it means, and therefore this is what it says. The Pharisees were a bit more like, well, this is kind of what they wrote then, and this is what it might mean now, and it's kind of a living, living in open and interpretation, and we got to sort of move with the flow. And um, I thought that was interesting, because I'll take a little detour here, because a lot of what we hear in, say, that, you know, and if you follow politics in the U.S., and, and sometimes in Christian circles, too, in the church, right, there's those who say, this is what's written, this is what's, these are actually the words that were put down, and therefore this is what the words mean to us. And then there's those on the other side that say, well, you know, the people who wrote this, it was a different time, and if we looked at things today, it might look differently, and we need to interpret these things differently. So, you know, that, that sort of thing hasn't stopped, and so it causes a lot of conflict. And uh, so it was in those days. 
Um, but anyways, um, here we are. We're going to read our passage here shortly. And if you haven't been with us for a while, we're journeying through the with Jesus through the Gospel of Mark. Um, we're going to read Mark 12 here. And um, just to remember, this is during Passover. So what we're going to deal with today is happening on a Wednesday. Of course, on on Monday was uh, the triumphal entry. Jesus came into Jerusalem. Uh, he was proclaimed Messiah, lots of cheering crowds. And Tuesday, he would have gone in and cleared out the temple and caused a lot of ruckus there. And so this takes place on a Wednesday. And he's in, the, he's in Jerusalem, in the temple courts, and kind of being tested by the Pharisees and the Sadducees because they're looking for any reason, any sort of gotcha thing that they can get him on uh, to either have the crowd turn against him or to have him labeled as an insurrectionist by the Romans or whatever. So um, if you would join me in reading Mark uh, 12. Verse 28. So one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered correctly, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your for your word, and thank you that it is so much more than just a book of rules of do's and don'ts, but it's it's just, it's your love story for us, and how you've loved us from the very beginning, and you're passionate about us, and how you want us to obey you and follow you with, with everything that we have, uh, because it's for our own joy and our own fulfillment, and um Lord, we pray as we listen to your message this morning that our hearts would be open and our minds would be open and that we would take what we hear today and, and take it home with us and be able to apply it, Lord. I pray this in your name. Amen. I had a sugary donut. Actually, I just had one bite and I'm still salivating. Anyways. So again, this is during the Passover feast. Um, we're surrounded, we're, we're um, in Jerusalem. The story takes place in Jerusalem, in the temple. Um, again, by some estimates, there would have been like over 2 million pilgrims that would have come here. It was a busy week. 
It was all about the Passover, all about sacrif offering sacrifices as, as ordained by the law. Um, and so Jesus was here teaching in the temple courts, and he was talking about a new kind of kingdom and a new kind of law. And so one of the, and so the, the threat was that he was going to upset the, the authorities, those that, that kept the law, which was the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and so they wanted to test him and trip him up. The Pharisees were especially, you could say, obsessed with the law. They, they studied the law. They knew the law. And the, so the scribes, and there's, there's a different account here in Matthew, but the, the indication here is that this is a scribe of the political party of the Pharisees, right? So they, were, they would write these things out. They would teach the law. They would interpret it. And they would follow people around and, 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 and make sure everybody was adhering to the law. And... They saw the law, but they f forgot about the relationship of the lawgiver to the people that he gave the law to. And so they had originally, of course, we all, we're all familiar with the Ten Commandments, but the Jews had another 603 commandments, right? So for a total of 613. And so the, the Pharisees would know these laws. They would debate them. They would categorize them. They had 365 laws for 365 days of the year that were the do's, and then the other ones were the, the don'ts. And then they also added their own little details to these laws of, of you know, and so they, they almost made kind of a, a sport about interpreting the laws and categorizing them and putting them in different hierarchies. And so, and a lot of what they were doing was showing how well I know the law because I'm a Pharisee, but look, you broke that law and you broke that law and I am better than you. That was kind of what they were about. One of the things that they did, um, they made a public, one of their public displays, of course, was, and I've referred to this previously, if you guys have seen The Chosen, it's a sort of a TV series, I'd recommend you see it. You can always pick out who the Pharisees are, right? Because the commoners are all kind of in these drab clothings, and the Pharisees have their white robes, and they have their headdress, and they're proudly standing around, and their perfect beards, but they also have these little, they would have little boxes on their foreheads or on their wrists. They called them little phylacteries, I think. And they had the law written on these things because, um, as it says in Deuteronomy, write these words and bind them to your heads and to your hearts. Um, and even when I was studying this, I found, I found this thing where there was actually details about when you tie it to your wrist, you have to like wrap the thing around this way and then the other cord that way in like a certain way. Of, like it's, it's so detailed and this is what they were stuck on. They knew the law. They had a deep knowledge of the law. But you know, they missed the one part. We're going to read here in a moment. You can turn to it now. Deuteronomy 6. They missed one part. It says you should tie the law to your head and to your wrist but also said to write it on your heart. It's almost like they sort of missed that part. They forgot about the relationship of the lawgiver to the people that he gave the law to. So if you were turn with me to Deuteronomy 6, verse 1 to 6. And so this is, this is Moses here in, the, in his later days. Israelites are about to go into the promised land. And he's kind of giving them a bit of a farewell speech and a bit of a, a reminder. Deuteronomy means like the second law or the second giving of the law in that sort of sense. And so he's reminding them again. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you. 
to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you and your children and the children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Right, so they were literally observing this, except for the part about write it on your hearts. I, I feel like they took that part a little lightly. But that didn't matter because other people couldn't see that, right? It was all sort of about this outward showing of, look at me, look how good I am um, compared, to, compared to the rest of you. So this is a, I think it's a, it's a good question these scribes, these Pharisees might have deliberated and said, what is one good question that we can catch Jesus on? And maybe they also thought, we can get, you know, Jesus is actually a pretty smart teacher. Maybe we can also get an answer from him that will sort of settle some of our debates. So they ask him this question, which is the greatest of the commands? And Jesus replies by reciting what is known to, to Jews as the Shema or Shema. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right. And that is exactly this, this verse here, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's the Shema. That's what Jews would have known. They, in fact, made a, a practice of, of reciting this or praying this when they got up in the morning, and they would do it again when they got, went to bed at night. So it was, was something that they did almost ritually, and... I thought, you know, like for so many of us, right, you, when, you, when you repeat things and they sort of lose their meaning, you kind of do, you know, it's like a repetitive thing. Maybe you've sat down for dinner once and everybody's tired and hungry and come on, let's go, the food's hot, let's move it. You know, dads, you'll appreciate this, right? My wife will probably <laughs> attest to this. Let's go and you say grace quickly, right? And you almost kind of say it because you got to get it out of the way because you want to eat. Maybe that's what it was like with the Shema, right? The Jews recited it, but they sort of lost, lost the meaning of those words. But as Jesus is, is saying this here, he's answering the question by, by saying this, and it would have all cut them, I think. They said, oh, we all say this every day. This is the most important law? They would have understood this. So Jesus answers the question, and he could have ended it there. And it, I think it's kind of interesting that they ask him, what is the most important question, right? And if you ever have a debate with someone, like who's the most, like what's the best car, or what's the best baseball team, or what's, the, what's your favorite movie, right? There can only be one most. But Jesus goes past here. He goes, this is the most, but, again, let's go back to Mark. I want to make sure I get the words right. Right, so Jesus says the Shema, and then he says the second is this. 
Love your neighbor as yourself, right? So why does Jesus go on and say, oh, by the way, there's a second one? I think there is a distinct purpose in that. For the second one, he goes to Leviticus. And if you want to turn with me to Leviticus 19... Give you a minute to get there, but Leviticus 19, it sort of seems to be kind of right in the middle. The Shema, you can sort of understand, it's this important kind of binding law, overarching law. This other one in Leviticus here, Leviticus 19, uh, verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against any one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Seems like a good law, but it's right there in the middle of like not planting your field with two different kinds of seed or not breeding different kinds of animals and not putting a stumbling block in front of the blind. It's, it seems a little bit random to pick that one law out and put it up here with the Shema, this overarching love the Lord your God. But I think the reason he did this, he, he did this is because he was trying to make a point. He was trying to make the point that the most important thing is to love the Lord your God. But along together with that, connected to it, is loving people like yourself. If you love God, you must love people. You can't do one without the other. You can't just love God and not love people. If you look at the Ten Commandments, for example, and... I'll admit I had to read them up just to make sure I knew the order and the sequence and whatever, right? But if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments have to do with us loving God, right? God is the only one. Don't make any carved images. Like, don't reduce God to a, a graven image. Don't misuse his name. Observe the Sabbath like the Lord observed the Sabbath, right? The other six of the Ten Commandments are about people. How do we treat other people? As, as made in the image of God. Don't steal from them. Don't, don't deny their innocence by being a false witness. Um, you know, honor your spouse and other people's spouse. Um, you know, it's, it's all about other people and respecting other people. So even the Ten Commandments have that same structure. Here's God, but I also want you to honor people because they're made in the image of God. They're his creation, and God loves those people. So you need to honor those people as well. Again, the important part of this is the Pharisees, they kind of missed that point, a lot of them, right? It was all about observing the law and about coming down especially hard on people that were sinners. How many times did the Pharisees say to Jesus, look, at you're having dinner with the, with the tax collectors and with the sinners, and those people, like, we wouldn't dare do that. We're Pharisees. Look at us. Look how good we are, Right? They distanced themselves from, from sinners. And what did Jesus do? He embraced them. They were quick to pile on to the sins of the sinners, that the Pharisees were. They were being crushed by their sins. Maybe they wanted to escape those sins, and they just piled on. And Jesus came alongside the sinners and said, you know what? I'm here for you. Tell me about your troubles. Let me tell you about the kingdom of God. The Pharisees missed the whole. It's like seeing, you know, not seeing the forest for the trees. They missed the whole picture. They missed the relationship between God and his people. 
And I thought, you know, how often do we kind of act like Pharisees, right? Here we are. We might think, hey, we're, we're the good people. We're, we're here on Sunday and, you know, we could be out doing something else. And, you know, we, we do good things. We, you know, pay our taxes and we pick up trash and we, we do nice. You know, we're better than that person over there, that, you know, her over there. And look at her gossiping again. And look at that guy driving his car too fast. And I think we like to do that. It makes us feel better about ourselves when we can find things in other people that we can put down on onto them and, and, and make ourselves look better. Sometimes I think, you know, I've acted like a Pharisee. I was convicted of that when I, when I was reading this. Uh, so now we see here in the passage in Mark, the Pharisee, or the scribe, <laughs> responds, he says, and I got to giggle at this, like, <laughs> he doesn't, he thinks Jesus is just some great rabbi who's got a great following, right? And the scribe says to Jesus, well said, teacher. The man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. <laughs> Does he know he's talking to God? <laughs> Here's God in the flesh. Here's Jesus, God in the flesh. And he just asked him, what do you think is the most important thing to God? And God himself answers the question, and he kind of gives him this sort of, boy." He, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling. But the scribe answers this question, or he responds to this question, and I was puzzled by it because, again, if we're looking at, the, if, if we're looking at where this is taking place, this is taking place during the Passover in Jerusalem, the seat of political and religious power in the temple, surrounded by probably as many crowds of people that could press in and listen to this exciting exchange. And there's Pharisees and high priests and scribes, and there's offerings taking place, and there's the money changers and things being sold for sacrifices. Everything that's happening here has to do with sacrifice and observance of the law. And this, this scribe might as well have said, it doesn't say that he said this here, but he might, have, he might as well have said, all of this stuff here that you're seeing happening here today and this week doesn't matter as much as loving people. Like he's starting to get, he's starting to get what the kingdom of God is about. But he blurts it out. And I can just imagine, like if you've ever been with, like you've been with somebody who says something cringeworthy and they're talking and you're like, don't, just stop, just, just, you know, and you want to pull the plug on them. I mean, I imagine these other Pharisees and scribes surrounding this one and saying, dude, don't admit that he's right. Like, don't say all this stuff because they had built everything that they have on the fact that they were in charge and this was the temple and these were the sacrifices and this was the way to reconcile yourself through God is by doing all these sacrifices. And here this guy's basically going, no, actually the relationship with God is more important, and the relationship with people is more important. But the amazing thing here is, even though this guy's a scribe, and we always put them, you know, in, with the Pharisees, and they're always the bad guys, we see something here, right? Even Jesus, 
with this exchange, he's working in his heart. This guy's heart's changing, right? And we'll see this later on. Like, he's starting to get it, right? And so we see how even the most, uh, those most opposed to the gospel and the, those most working against the gospel, Jesus can change their heart, right? Sometimes we discount them. We, we might say, oh, this guy's just a Pharisee. He's just whatever, right? Nowadays, we might say, oh, that person there, that Hollywood actor, or that person that's been on the news or whatever, oh, they must hate Christians. They're, you know, we discount them. But God can work in their lives. Work, God can change their hearts. He has the power to do that. So the question is, how should we love God? If you've been around church for a while, you know that we often talk about love, and even in many of the songs that we sing, right? Um, if you're new to church, maybe love is a, song, is a word that you heard, heard on a country song, or you heard Taylor Swift singing about love, or Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it, right? That's not the kind of love we're talking about here. The word love in here is is the Greek word, I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, agapeos, which is um, the love of goodwill, benevolence, and willful delight in the object of love. It's a love that wants to serve, a love that wants to obey. That's the kind of love that we should have for God. It's not a, it's not a showy love. It's not a love of duty. It's not a love of, um, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a romantic love, of course. It's a, it's a love of, delight in the one that we love. So somebody might say, a skeptic might say, what is this about God? God's, you know, you ask God, what is the most important thing? And God says, it's about me. It sort of sounds like God is narcissistic or maybe he's lonely. He says, the most important thing that any of you should think about is loving me. That's kind of selfish of God. Well, not at all, because God knows that in each of us, we have a soul because we're created in his image, right? And you might have heard that, that imagery, like in each of us, there's a hole that only God can fill. And God knows that we can chase and pursue all kinds of other things, but only through relationship with him are we made whole. He's the only one who can fill that hole in our hearts. God knows that if we pursue him and obey him, It'll bring us a life of, of joy. It won't, it won't eliminate all, all challenges and difficulties, but it'll give us fulfillment and it'll bring us joy and it helps avoid pain and hurt and regret. That's why God wants us to pursue him and to have a relationship with him as the number one thing in our lives. It also says that God is one. And so when this law was given to the Israelites, they lived in a, in, a, in, a, in a society surrounded by polytheistic cultures. They had, and again, we heard some of this last week, right? They had idols for this and gods for that and a god for the rain and a god for the river and an idol for the whatever, right? And so God said, no, I am one God. I am all you need. I am all sufficient. I am the only God there is. I'm the living God and I am the only one and give only your energy and your desire and your love for me. That's why there's that focus on the God is one. Again, as we read in Deuteronomy, um, I'm not going to read it here just in the interest of time, but in Ezekiel 14, um, there's a comment about setting up idols in our hearts, right? We often think about 
idols as well, we, th we think about it back then. They had their idols, they had their bowels and their pagan, you know, their poles and all this kinds of stuff. We have idols too, right? Anything that we worship that distracts us from, from God. And Ezekiel here says even in, you know, we can put up idols in our hearts. Like our hearts are like a temple. We can put other little idols up there and God can be one of them. And when life gets tough, we can, oh, hey, God, I like that one. That's my favorite idol, right? But when it, life isn't so difficult, we can pick another idol to pursue. And God says, no, I want to be the only one on the throne of your heart. So how do we love God with, it says, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? Our heart, so first it says our heart. So this is the seat of our emotions and affections and passions, right? In scripture it says uh, uh, you'll be given the, the desires of your heart, right? It's, it's like where these things flow out of. But the one thing is... Um, our emotions, right? So we need to love the Lord by giving him our emotions. Sometimes our emotions are good. They're full of praise and admirations. We need to give him those. But also when we're angry and when we're hurt, we also need to submit those emotions to him. He made us. He made us to be emotional, right? He understands that. And so we need to give those things over to him. We also need to serve him with our affections, Affections are the things that we love and what we hate. Do we love the things that God loves? And do we hate the things that he hates? Hate's kind of a charged word these days, right? But you might say repulsed. Are we repulsed by the same things God is repulsed by? How do we serve God with our affections? And what about our passions, right? Passions come from our heart too. These are the sorts of things like if you have a hobby, like if you can't wait to cross-stitch or you can't wait to get in the wood shop or to get working on that old classic car or go golfing, like what are your passions? What sort of things do you dream about? Those things can take up an awful lot of energy and, and emotion in us, right? And space in our hearts. Do we have, heart, do we have room in our heart for God and, and, and to pursue him with a passion to, to try to know him better and to learn more about him? Is God on our list of passions, right? And the soul, we've already spoken about this a bit, right? That, that is that space in our heart that only God can fill. How do we fill that with him, right? Do, do you take time to seek, to make a connection with your creator? Do you pray? Do you have regular time of prayer and read his word and just spend time meditating on it and listening to the Lord, what he's telling us? Even as a daily habit, right? A lot of people make daily habits of, going jogging or um, you know, dietary things like that? Do you make it a daily habit to spend time with the Lord to fill your soul and to feed your soul? How do we love God with our mind? With our minds, we know things, we understand things. We should use our minds to learn about God and to know him better. There's a lot of stuff competing for that space between our ears, right? And there's, if you're like me, there's only so much space between those two ears. What are, we, what are we filling that space with? What are we reading? What are we listening to? What movies are we watching? And I'm not saying it's got to be all this or all that, right? But what sort of things do we pursue that help us to, that help fill our mind with the things of God, that help us to understand him more, 
to see him more clearly, to, you know, listening to whether it's worship music or a or, or movie or reading books. How do we help to understand God more? Um, I've said before, like, I don't um, speak here very often, right? But when I do, it's, I, I'm just like, I find I'm going through this going, man, it's just amazing how all this stuff connects. Like, all these connections I'm making here, right? It's, it's really exciting for me, and I, I find, yeah, that fills my mind with so much more in our understanding of what's going on. Cody's nodding, right? He knows, he, he gets it. Um, in Romans 12, verse 2, we read, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, is good, pleasing, and perfect will. As a parent, I often reflect on this too, right? Like there's so much, even for our kids, competing for their minds, right? It's like this battle. It's like there's always something pushing into that space between our ears. And how much of God's stuff are we putting in there versus how much of the world's stuff is going in there and how it changes our, our, our perspective, our way of thinking about everything, right? We talk about like having a biblical worldview perspective as opposed to like a worldly worldview perspective. We need to pursue the things of God to fill our minds with those things. We should love God with our strength. And I don't think it's talking about physical strength because a lot of us would have a challenge in that area. My kids are getting older and I'm realizing I'm no longer the strongest one in the house, which as a father, it's it's interesting realization. (laughs) But I still think I have the the greater strength of will. And I think what it's talking about here is the mental strength, the, the strength that it takes to obey. If you've ever endeavored on a fitness plan or on a diet plan or whatever, you know how tough it is, right? Or if you're fasting, if you've ever fasted, right? The power of your mind, there's a cookie there, there's that last piece of pie, or you're supposed to be going out for a run and it's raining and you're in a warm bed, right? The strength it takes to do that. And living in pursuit of God isn't always easy. It's not a, it's not a walk in the park. And there's times where we need to have the mental strength to love God with our strength and to say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to push forward and do this despite every fiber of my flesh, every fiber of my human body that says, I don't want to do that. I don't want to put myself in that position. I don't want to take that risk. Those are my friends and my neighbors or whatever, right? We, we, kind of, we tend to not want to do that naturally, but we need to have the strength to obey and to pursue him. The psalmist says, blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. Right? Obeying God shouldn't be a, a drudgery. It shouldn't be about checking boxes. It should be a delight, a delight to pursue the things of the Lord. We love the Lord by being faithful and consistent, not fickle. Not dividing the Lord amongst all of our other idols that we have set up in our lives. It's not a part-time task. God wants all of our love and he wants it for the long haul. And he wants it to be exclusive. So, again, Jesus could have stopped there, right? He could have stopped and said, well, that's the most important thing is to love God. But he didn't. He, he carried on. And uh, I suppose if, he had, if that was it, we could be done today and we could enjoy the potluck and that would be it. But Jesus carried on because he figured, he, to Jesus, this was the point, I think, that he was trying to make is that 
Loving your neighbor goes along with loving God, and we've already read that in Leviticus. Even though loving God is the most important law, it can't be separated from loving people. And you might have encountered someone like this before, a Christian like this, or maybe you've, you've had this thought yourself, kind of like the Christian hermit, right? You've seen those t-shirts that say, the more people I know, the more I love my dog, right? And you might have encountered people that have said, you know, it's just about me, I've got my Bible, and it's just about God and myself, and I'm just tired of people. I've been disappointed, I've been hurt, I've been let down, people are unreliable, they're annoying, it's, it's just about God and me. But you know what, he says, nope, that's not enough. If God says, if you love me, you also love all of these people that I love. And how does God love us? He loves us because we're, despite of being, despite the fact that we're imperfect and we're fickle and we're sinful and we're stubborn and we're unfaithful and we do the same dumb thing over and over and we wander around and we don't deserve it. And God loves us despite the fact that he knows that we can never love him back perfectly the same way that he loves us. God doesn't love us because it's sort of a I'll scratch your back and you'll scratch mine kind of a love. He loves us despite of everything that we are. So what kind of people should we love? Who should we love? Well, there's a, there's a number of different categories. First of all, look around. The people in the church, and not just in this church, but the church, the greater church, right? The people of God. We should love other people in the church. And I find sometimes we have a hard time with that, right? There's someone who's disappointed us, someone who didn't return a greeting in the parking lot, you know, hey, how's it going? Maybe somebody didn't bring a big big casserole to the potluck like we did and we feel like, oh, what's the matter with them? Or they took our seat, right? But some of the things go deeper than that. Maybe some words have been said or something that wasn't said. There's been some hurts, there's been disappointments. Maybe it was at a different church that you attended and somebody said something or something, somebody did something and that hurt you so deeply and it was deeply disappointing, right? And we need to forget, we, well, it's hard to forget, but we need to forgive and we need to love those people because like us, they're imperfect and we're imperfect. And that's hard. We should love our neighbors and our families and friends. That's the other category of people. And again, sometimes it's been said, the people that are closest to us can hurt us the most. Right? Maybe someone in your family, maybe someone, um, one of your neighbors, one of your close friends said something or did something. Maybe you had somebody that was a friend that disappointed you and turned against you, stabbed you in the back. And every time you see that person or think of that person, you're just thinking, oh man, if I ever had a chance to, I would put a stick in their spokes or something. Like I would, right? Like some of these things can just weigh us so, I know. <laughs> That's been true for me. There's been people that I've encountered that have hurt me, and it's, and it's tough to think of them, to see their name, right? to be re- reminded of that and to go, you know what, I forgive them, and I, <laughs> I love those people like God loves them. That's, that's, a tough, that's a tough order. God loves us, and he forgave us, and he hasn't stopped. The other kinds of people that, are, that we're to love, this is another hard one, right? People that are different from us. 
in some ways it's easy to get along with people in the church or people that you know live in your neighborhood or people that are kind of similar to you people that play the same sports as you do or um, people that vote the same way that you do or people that like the same things that you like on social media those are easy right but what about the people that are different that are difficult that oppose you right what about the people that actively um, they just irritate you when you read about them or when you see them your blood boils what about our enemies what about the people on the street that are drug addicts people that are just dealing with difficult situations and you just go man I don't know how to relate to those people they're so different than me you know those are the people that we're also called to love the sinners right like I said before, sometimes you feel like a Pharisee because, well, I'm good, I go to church, and I'm a Christian, and you know, look at me, look at all the good things that I've done, and I do. And you see people that are just living a lifestyle that is not pursuing God, and it's easy to kind of go, huh, well, hopefully you'll figure it out soon, right? We tend to look down our long noses and think of ourselves better than them, but God loves those people, even if they're pursuing a lifestyle that's far away from Him. If you would turn with me to Romans 13. Verse 8. Romans 13 verse 8. It says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not steal, do not covet. Whatever other commandment there may be are summed up by this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Neighbor, Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So here he underscores everything that Jesus is saying. Even these big ones, right? We think, well, hey, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. Yeah, I'm doing, doing pretty good on that one, right? But then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> as yourself, right? If you're really honest with yourself, you've got to go, eh, I can't check that box. I don't know if I'm doing good in that department. But then he says, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Right? Got to do that one. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. So what he's saying here is, Jesus, what he's saying is you've taken all these 613 laws and all the traditions and things that the Pharisees have added to them. He's saying, I'm going to give you the pocket version of it, of the Torah and the Mishnah. Love your neighbor, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, I'm going to take a little detour here. There's a priority, right? There's love God and then love your neighbor. And love people, right? I think there's a risk of flipping that around and putting God as sort of a secondary thing or maybe ignoring them. And I see this in, in what we can see sort of in our culture in the social justice movement perhaps. If you disagree with me, we can talk about it later. But I, I think there's this kind of idea, especially in some churches where it's all about loving people. It's all about social justice and feeding the poor and looking after the orphans and all this kinds of stuff. It's all about people. But it almost seems like they've forgotten about God, right? The focus is so much on these acts 
of doing good things, but it's like they've forgotten God. They don't mention him. They don't talk about him. And they seem to do some of these things as ways of, in and of themselves, doing good deeds because then they can check little boxes and say, I'm a good person. So maybe that's not their motivation. Maybe I'm wrong. But this is a caution here, right? God is the priority. Pursue God. He's the, he's the highest priority. And as a result of that, as a result of seeing all the people as people made by him in his image, love people just the way that you love and care for yourself. So we're looking at all this stuff. And like the new car owner going, whew, I don't know if I can do all this. That's a lot of, that is, that is tough. It's an impossible command. How can we do all these things? How can we not only keep all these 613 laws, but how can we love people perfectly? How can we love them? How can we love God perfectly, wholly, completely? How can we do this? <laughs> well, we can't. We can't do it on our own. It's the work of Christ in us, right? Jesus Christ is the one who lived that perfect life, who loves people perfectly. He's perfectly obeyed. He's perfectly obeyed all the laws. And he's taken the punishment for breaking all those laws only by trusting in him. And through the continued work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, can we aim to, to fulfill this command to love others like ourselves? Just like it says that we need to continually work out our, con our salvation. It's an ongoing work, right? It's not something that you decide to do one day and go, well, I'm just going to love people. There we go, done, right? It's an ongoing work. It's an ongoing challenge to us. And, and it continues for the remainder of our lives. Um, I've been blessed. Like, we're blessed to have people, you know, I'm halfway through my life perhaps, right? Younger people are younger. There's older people here. But I've always found it such a blessing when you've had, like, my, um, I know my grandparents in my life and, and my wife's life, and I know older people in the church too, right? We can look on them, and, and it's such an inspiration to have people that have walked with Jesus for many, many more years than I have, and, and, and to listen to them and to, and to um, just listen to them share their examples of how they've, how they've worked at pursuing Jesus all their life. And I think that's a challenge to us, right? It's something that we need to work at and pursue every day. So we're back to the scribe here in the story, and there's a couple of things that the scribe doesn't get. Like I said before, it sort of maybe it seems like he blurted out his answer, but I think maybe his heart was being softened. He was starting to understand it. But the one thing he, that he doesn't get is that this teacher that he's talking to, Jesus, he's asking him about God. He doesn't get that he is in fact God, right? The second thing that he doesn't understand, like I just said, is that he, the scribe, even though the scribe thinks he's perfect, he's trying to obey all these 613 laws, the scribe doesn't understand that even by his own sheer willpower and effort, he, the scribe, cannot perfectly obey all of those laws, and he cannot perfectly obey the law to obey God and to love people like himself. He can't do it. He doesn't understand that without the help of the one that he's talking to, Jesus Christ, that he's hopelessly lost. And therefore, 
The scribe doesn't understand that loving God and trusting Jesus is the only requirement. Of all that other stuff, all these Torahs and Mishnahs and all this stuff that these guys read, that is the only requirement that the scribe has, is to trust Jesus. Because all of those traditions, those are good. But the only thing that he needs to do is to trust Jesus and trust him as the Messiah and to recognize him as the Messiah. So when Jesus hears the scribe's response, he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So he understands that the scribe, he's starting to get part of the picture and he's getting close to the threshold, but he's not yet into the kingdom of God. And we don't know how the story ends. We don't know if the scribe and Jesus had later conversations, maybe around the corner in private, maybe if he fully understood. But the one thing that, that is clear is that God doesn't want a blind and a cold, methodical, check-the-boxes kind of obeying the law. He wants us to pursue him with all of our heart. He wants us to serve him as Lord, make him the master of our lives, and to pour out our lives like a drink offering, like it says, to willingly follow his commands and ordinances. And so this is a reminder for all of us to pursue God, to pursue him passionately, and to love people, all people, even the people that are hard to love, to, to, to love them like we love ourselves. So there's a little, little section on here which seems like it's maybe a different, different part of the story. Verse 35 and verse 37. Where it seems like this first conversation has ended. And then Jesus again is teaching in the temple courts and he says, how is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the Son of God? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? The Lord, the large crowd listened to him with delight. I think he's continuing, Jesus is continuing this message Right throughout his, whole throughout his whole ministry, he's been saying, I am the Messiah. I'm the one sent as the promised redeemer of Israel. But I'm not a king Messiah. I'm not here to conquer. I'm, I'm God's son. And so here he's, he's basically making a point that um, it, it's, it's a bit of a riddle. It's like David is saying, um, the Lord is my Lord above me, but the Lord is also my descendant kind of coming after me, right? And he's trying to make the point here that Jesus is the creator and he's the finisher. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the one who created the earth. He's the one who created David <laughs> and his ancestors, but he's also himself a human ancestor of the line of David. And so he's, he's finishing this process here that I am that Messiah, right? He's given them one more chance to see that he is, he is the Messiah who is God, who's the one come in the flesh, right? Again, remember, this is Passover, and the point here is still, this is taking place on a Wednesday. By Friday, Jesus would be crucified. By Friday, Jesus would be that final Passover lamb, right? So there's two messages here, I think, for us. If, if you're not a believer, you know, if, you've, if you haven't trusted Jesus as the one who restores your relationship with God the Father, you know, if, if you're pursuing a life of 
you know, where you, you know God, you kind of like God or maybe you agree with God. I mean, if you're here today, that might be you, where you're okay with God and you try to make God happy by observing rules, by being a good person, by getting a high score on the, the Ten Commandments, you know, on the score sheet of how much, you know, how did you score last week? Oh, you got seven out of ten on the Ten Commandments. If that's you, you need to realize there's nothing that you can ever do to get a perfect score. Nothing that you can ever do every single moment of every day of your life to perfectly please God in the way that fulfills his commands. And the only way to do that is to trust in Jesus because he's the one who lived that perfect life. And he says, come to me. If you're weary, if you're weary of trying on your own to do all these things, let me help you. Let me carry that burden for you. Jesus has already done it. So you need to trust in Jesus. And if you are a believer, I want to encourage you to, to not say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus and that's, that's good enough for me, right? But I want to encourage you to just carry on with a lifelong pursuit of God to, to make him a priority, purpose to grow, joyfully obey him and his commands, not out of drudgery or out of fear of being struck by the proverbial thunderbolt, but because you love him and you want to pursue him. And let's not be Pharisees. Let's not look down on those who are struggling in sin or those who aren't you know, as good as we are, people that are living a lifestyle very different from us. Let's not, let's not look down our noses at them and judge them because God loves them. And I know Jesus' heart breaks for all those people that are lost in their sin, and I think our heart should break for them too. Let's have compassion for the, for the lost and the wandering. Let's pray. God, it's, it's hard to follow you when we think about all the, when we think, when we think about the high degree of perfection that, that you are. You're perfect. You're holy. You exist in a, in a, in a vacuum, it seems, of, of perfection. And anything that we as humans do and try to do and by all of our effort, Lord, we just can't, we can't get close to that. We might think for a moment there's a flicker of hope that we can live according to your law, but we just, we can't, Lord. And, but we strive to just because we can't, we continue to strive, Lord. And we thank you for sending your son to hold our hand, to carry our burden as we try to continue to live that life, Lord. Lord, we pray that you'd fire up in us a passion for people that are different than us, people that live differently than us, that talk differently, that that would spit on a Christian if they ever met one. Lord, you were spit on, you were treated harshly and miserably, and, and you still loved, you loved the people that were pounding those nails into your hands. And you you said, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing, Lord. And there's there's people in this world today, so many people that are working against you and against your will. And it's so easy for us to be angry at them or disappointed or hurt or to just discount them altogether, Lord. But kindle in us a passion for the lost that, that we might see the world the way that you see it, Lord. Pray this, that you would do that through your power in us. I pray that as we go 
on our on our week today, Lord. Help us to remember these things. Help us to plant these seeds of what we've learned today in our hearts that we might grow in those things and that we would not forget them. And I pray these things in your name. Amen.